0: chapter 27 of the glory of the conquered by susan glasspool this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org reading by maparard chapter 27 learning to be carl's eyes she wondered many times in the next few months why she had put it in that very simple self-evident way for there are things harder than to go barefoot and hungry and friendless. Those are the primitive things, to be met with one's endowment of primitive courage, elemental strength. But poise of spirit cannot be wrested from elemental courage. To carry one's carefully wrapped-up burden with the nonchalance of the day, nature forgot to make endowment for that. It is something, then, to be worked out wholly by one's self, persecution she could have endured like a sport but it was almost unendurable to be tolerated she was sure it would have been easier if only they had been rude to her to be openly jeered at would fire her soul but there was so little in their manner either to kindle enthusiasm or stir aggressiveness she began to think that the most trying thing in the world was to have people polite to one the very first week was the worst of all no one knew what to do with her as this was her own idea an idea no one else pretended to understand it was expected she make some suggestions for the proper disposition of herself but poor ernestine did not know enough about it to make disposition of herself she could only smile with a courageous serenity and ask that she be shown how to help about things and so mr willard who was in charge of carl's laboratory and who was Carl without Carl's genius, turned her over to Mr. Beeson, his assistant. Beeson would show her how to help. Her sense of humor helped her there. It was amusing that one who was learning to help should be such an encumbrance. And there were many amusing things about Mr. Beeson. He was afraid of her because she was a woman, for like reason, disapproving of her presence in the laboratory and yet there was an unconscious deference. The same kind of veneration he would have paid Carl's old coat or his pipe. John Beeson had never been shaken by a genuine emotion until the day he read that Dr. Carl Hubers had lost his eyesight and must give up his work. In the horror, the rage, and the grief which swept over him then, Beeson rose to heights of a human being, never could be quite without humanship again. When he came back that fall, Professor Hastings was quick to sense the change. Beeson was given a place in Dr. Cuber's old laboratory as one of Mr. Willard's assistants. That first morning, after he had been in there, about an hour, he came out to Professor Hastings, who chanced to be alone. I don't know whether I want to stay in there or not, the boy jerked out. He told him that Dr. Hubers wouldn't like to have him there. You know he liked you, he said simply. Beeson sat a long time, pondering. Well, they'll never have another man like him, he said at last, savagely, and choking a little. After the first few weeks, his attitude toward Ernestine took on a complexity, an analysis of which would have greatly astounded Mr. Beeson himself. He did a great deal of pondering as to whether it would really be possible for dr hubers to go on with his work it seemed to him it would not be but a few things mrs hubers had said in a very simple way had opened up a great deal of speculation as to what was possible and what was not and the thing which made him grow quickly into an unconscious respect for her was her assumption that the most important thing in the world was that dr hubers should go on with his work now, that looked as though she had some sense, Beeson admitted. Of course, the ridiculous part was thinking she was the one to bring it about. When anybody would know, it would have to be someone, well, someone like himself. But then, it was just like a woman to think she could do anything she took it into her head to do. Of course, she would very soon find out that she couldn't. But if she proved someone else could, why then she wouldn't be so bad, after all. Ernestine was quick to see that the way to enlist Mr. Beeson was to talk to him about Carl. They were alone in the laboratory for an hour each morning, and during that period she always managed to say something about Dr. Huber's to leave Beeson closer to her at the end of the hour than he had been at the beginning. There were more ways than one of winning a scientific victory, she concluded, half-humorously, but with a touch of sadness. She was beginning to see that it was a battle which demanded tact and diplomacy quite as much as brains and skill. She must not only furnish enthusiasm for herself, she must inspire all associated with her if she were to gain from them what they had to give. It was after she had one day spoken with unusual freedom of the suffering which surged beneath Carl's calm acceptance of the inevitable "'that Beeson took his first firm stand in her behalf. "'Well, now, of course,' he conceded, "'after a long time of turning it over in his mind, "'you really don't have to know much, do you? "'The great thing for you to learn "'is to tell exactly how results look. "'It isn't as if you had to reason and think. "'That was Beeson's supreme rise to graciousness. "'Why, you have the idea exactly, Mr. Beeson,' "'she replied, admiringly and Beeson grasped that he had manifested rare insight. "'Well now, doubtfully, I suppose you might practice on me. Practice is what you need. I haven't looked at any of those things over there. See if you can give me an idea of what they are.' She did her best, blundering freely, and thinking with an inward smile that she had not counted on anything so difficult as translating things to Beeson. Then he took the tube from her hand, and explained how she had failed to get the significant things and how valueless she would be unless she made the determining points stand out he was very blunt and unflattering but she was grateful to him from the bottom of her heart you see you do have to have some brains after all he concluded with a sigh but after that he frequently devoted his entire hour to helping her he had come to accept her as one of his duties and beason was not one to neglect his appointed task day by day she gained a great deal from the uncompromising mr beason in fact after those first uncertain weeks she gained a great deal from everyone gradually it began to systematize itself and ernestine's good sense her earnestness which was fairly devotion her respect for everyone's knowledge and gratitude for all help to say nothing of her eyes and smile and voice slowly penetrated even the conservatism of science dr parkman did not neglect her he came out often and spent an hour in the laboratory bringing things for her to work with perhaps the doctor saw that quite as much as his help she needed the prestige his attention would give it was no small thing to have the great dr parkman giving her his time upon my soul Mr. Willard said one day, after the doctor had been there a long time and had seemed very much in earnest, I don't believe Parkman's the man to spend his time on a wild goose chase. It doesn't seem so, does it? said Professor Hastings ingenuously. Why, think what that man's time is worth, continued Mr. Willard, growing more and more impressed. I don't know anyone else out there who would get much of it, Professor Hastings ventured well she is a remarkable woman willard said then insistently and professor hastings understanding many things about human beings said he was really coming to feel that way himself ernestine was alone in the laboratory one bright morning in december mr beason had just gone away after assuring her anew that she had a very great deal to learn perhaps it was funny but one was not always in the mood for humorous things Sometimes one felt more like putting one's head down on the table and having a good cry. Her hands were not quite steady, as she went about the work Beeson had patronizingly left for her to do. And, out of the mists which blinded her, there came a picture of her own quiet studio at home, where she had worked with her own things, things with which she was supreme. She saw herself at her easel, working in that quick, sure way of hers, no one to tell her someone else could do it a great deal better, and that it was extremely doubtful whether she could ever do anything at all. A longing to be back there, doing the things she knew she could do, a longing to have again that sure sense of her work as good, swept over her then. She was accustomed to a sense of mastery. It was that made some of these things so hard. It was not easy to make over one's soul even when it was love, called one on. As she went steadily ahead with her task, working out painstakingly the correction Beason had made, she wondered whether there were as many tears back of other smiles as there had often been back of hers. But she had been able to smile. That was something for which to give thanks. Not even Carl himself would ever know what she had gone through. But what she had gone through was of small consequence. Could she but push her way on to what she was confident awaited her? There was sustaining power in that thought. Her hands did not tremble now. Her eyes were clear. She worked on steadily and firmly. One thing which had unnerved her was that Karl had seemed to hate to have her go away that morning. He had followed her out into the hall. "'Working so hard, Liebchen?' he said. "'And was it not wistfully?' Perhaps he had not felt like work himself, and had wanted her to stay at home with him. It hurt cruelly to think Carl might not understand her willingness to be away from him so much. His presence was always with her in the laboratory. The days brought a very clear picture of Carl at work there, a new understanding of his adjustment to his work, firmer comprehension of his love for it often a sense of the terribleness and wrongness of his disease would rush over her crowding her heart with the old rebellion and bitterness again and again she lived through the hour karl had spent there alone facing the truth and then a horror of those things with which she worked those awful things which had destroyed karl's eyes would take hold of her as a physical fear a repulsion almost impossible to fight she was constantly brought to see the difference between him and these other men every hour she spent there brought deeper appreciation of carl's greatness clearer sense of it and when their kindly patronage sometimes passed from the amusing to the insufferable she would think how carl master of them all took her so unreservedly into his mind and heart cherishing her ideas and opinions as quite the most vital things in all the world and sometimes that would help her to smile, and not infrequently it made her long to hurl a test-tube at the self-satisfied head of Mr. Beeson. But always, in the end, it caused her to set her whole being with new persistence, more passionate stubbornness, in this determination to achieve. It was while she was still alone that Professor Hastings came in with a note he had just received for her. It's from Dr. Parkman she said, as she tore it open hastily. She read a little of it, and then sat down. He thought for a moment that she was going to cry. "'Dr. Parkman wants me to come down to one of his operations this afternoon,' she looked up at him, appealingly. "'I I never went to anything like that,' she added, with a tremulous laugh. "'What does he say about it?' he asked, anxiously. "'Merely that it will be a good cancer operation, and that I had better—' "'begin on that part of the work. "'He says he would be willing to do that, "'but he thinks it will help me to be able to make "'some of the observations for Dr. Cooper's myself. <laughs> "'Well, it sometimes makes me sick to see things I don't like,' "'laughing a little, and plainly unnerved. "'Oh, no,' he assured her. "'It will not be that bad.' "'But he added, uneasily, "'Dr. Portman seems anxious for you to come.' "'No, not particularly anxious. "'He simply tells me to be there at two o'clock.' "'I suppose, then, you'd better go,' he laughed. "'You won't mind much. "'You may today, but you'll become accustomed to it very soon, "'and it is important. "'Someone else might do it, "'but it will help your own understanding of the subject, "'make your equipment that much better. "'It's a great thing for you to have Dr. Parkman's help, "'and he is so pleased with your progress.' He told me the other day that he thought it absolutely phenomenal the way you were getting on. Did he? she asked eagerly, for she had learned to seize upon all which would buoy her up. We all think so, he replied earnestly. Even Mr. Willard, who, as you may have observed, is not an enthusiast, said the other day that you were becoming really useful. She brightened, and then laughed. She had never supposed... She would be inordinately pleased to have a man like Mr. Willard say she was really useful. Well, Mr. Beeson went so far as to assert that you had a general intelligence not unlike that of a man. She laughed heartily at that. <laughs> I'm afraid they won't think I have the nerve or sense of a man when I get in the operating room this afternoon, she said with a wry little face. Well, remember what it's all for he said in that simple way of his which went so far because it was so direct and remember that we are all believing in you in response to that she went back to her work with new resolution it was a little before two when her lagging footsteps brought her inside of the hospital why i act as though i were going to my own execution she told herself scornfully ever since receiving the note she had been trying not to think about what was before her but it was here now a fact to be faced conquering an impulse to turn about and beat a hasty retreat she advanced with a brisk and businesslike air she was sure would deceive the most knowing of hospital attendants they seemed to know about her in the office and took her up to one of the rooms adjoining the operating room the hospital was a very large place and there were a great many odors she did not like she hated herself for being so silly about things Through the open door she saw many faces, white faces, thin faces, faces drawn with pain, faces robbed of hope, faces fretful, and faces indifferent, and she caught sight of one girl whose very happy eyes looked out from a face which bore the record of much pain. A story easy to read. She had been very ill, but now she was getting well, and how calm and well-ordered a place it was. Strange how they could keep so unruffled a surface over so turbulent a sea. A nurse upstairs said that Dr. Parkman had told her to look after Mrs. Hubers. She dressed her in a white gown and talked to her pleasantly about operations in general. Ernestine was glad that this very rational being did not know how hard she was struggling to keep her teeth from chattering. In a minute, Dr. Parkman himself came in. He, too, in white gown ready for the operation. He looked so strange, to her nervous vision, supernatural, a being from other worlds, holding the destiny of this one in those strong, supple, incisive fingers. I don't suppose you'll enjoy this much, he said, but you'd better get used to them. Carl may need you to do some of this for him, and you wouldn't like it not to be able to. No, indeed, she replied heartily very heartily i'm so glad to come he looked at her in his keen deep-seeing way she had an uncomfortable sense that he had a distinct impulse toward a smile hughes one of our young doctors will point out a few things to you as we go along and i'll go over it with you afterwards then they went into the operating room she fought hard against the smell of ether and managed to hold herself quite firm against it but there was a ghastliness in the whole thing which frightened her. The patient was lying there on the operating table, covered with sheets, looking as if dead. It was a woman who was to be operated on, and Ernestine could not overcome the idea that it was a dreadful thing for her to be there alone, surrounded by strange people who were acting in so unconcerned a manner. They did not seem to be thinking in the least of what life and death meant to this woman one young doctor was showing something to another and they laughed right out loud the woman whose life was at stake was not impressing them any more than-not any more than-that terrible-looking little instrument which the nurse handed to dr parkman her dizzy vision got dr parkman's face as he leaned over his patient she had never seen such a look of concentration he did not know anything in the world then save the thing he was doing and the concentration was enveloped in so tremendous a coolness that her own face must have warned the nurse who was looking after her, for, she whispered, "'Suppose you come over here by the window. "'Until they have started, there is no need for you to watch "'while they are making the incision.' "'So she stood there with her back to them, "'looking out at a little park across from the hospital. "'Down there, men and women were moving about, quite as usual.' one girl was laughing very heartily about something strange that people should be laughing now you might come over here said the nurse as pleasantly and easily as though saying wouldn't you like a cup of tea she tried then with all her might to take it as the rest of them were taking it but they were operating on the stomach and her first glimpse caused an almost uncontrollable sinking in the knees her ears began to pound but by listening very hard she could hear what Dr. Hughes was saying. He was saying something about its being a very nice case, and she wondered if the woman were married, and if she had any children, and then she knew how irrelevant and unprofessional that was. Dr. Hughes was telling her to look at something, and she did look, and she saw Dr. Parkman's hands, only it seemed they were not human hands at all, but some infallible instrument an instrument with an unconquerable soul and then everything was dancing before her eyes her ears were pounding harder and harder her knees sinking everything swaying someone had hold of her and someone else a great many miles away was saying take her out when she opened her eyes she was lying on a couch in an anteroom the nurse bending over her the attendant smiled pleasantly no more agitated than before too bad she said a good many of us take it like that, at first. But Ernestine was not to be comforted. It meant too much to her. The tears were running down her face, but suddenly she brushed them angrily aside and sat up. I'm going back, she said resolutely. Oh, but you mustn't, protested the nurse. Not today. It really wouldn't do. And anyway, they must be almost through. Dr. Parkman worked so rapidly. It was a very disheartened, ernestine who sat there then alone what will dr parkman think of me she bewailed to herself he will never want to have anything more to do with me he will be so disgusted that he will let me alone now and how am i to get along without him oh why am i such a fool the whole day had been hard she was tired out when she came and this was too much so she just lay back on the couch and cried it was so that dr parkman found her when he came briskly in at the close of the operation why what's the matter he demanded heard some bad news bad news she choked out no i haven't heard any bad news except that i'm an utterly worthless weak-minded fool and where did you ever hear that he pursued oh doctor i'm so ashamed but if you'll only give me another chance if you'll just not give me up for a little while yet give you up? Now, what kind of reviving fluid did Miss Lewis produce for you? What in the world are you talking about? Do you think you're any grand exception in not seeing your first operation through? Hm. Ask some of these nurses around here. Some of the doctors, too. Only they won't tell the truth. My first day in the dissecting room was a day of about thirty minutes. So you see, you have plenty of company in your weak-mindedness. She brightened them to the extent of looking willing to be comforted. But it's humiliating, Doctor, to think you're going to accomplish some big thing and then be absolutely overcome by a little incidental thing that doesn't happen to appeal to your senses. It's awful to have your senses get ahead of your soul like that, she laughed. Hmm. Dr. Parkman had a hum all his own. There's nothing unique in that experience, either. The spirit is willing, but the stomach is weak. To put it in exact terms. As a matter of fact, that's what life is made up of, having great purposes overthrown by minor inconveniences. Many a man can get hold of a great idea, but very few of them can stick by it through the things that make them uncomfortable. That's the reason most dreamers fail. They're not willing to come down out of the clouds and get to work at things that turn their stomachs. Well, I'm not like that, she flashed back at him. You? I know you're not. Some ancestor of yours gave you a big bump of stubbornness, for which you should look back to him with gratitude. Stubborn people aren't easily put out of the race. Now, I'll tell you why I wanted you to come down here. He went on, more seriously. I want you to see the thing just as it is. I want you to get the conception of it as a whole. I don't want you to become short-sighted. Some people look so much through the microscope that they forget how to look any other way. That's the difference between Carl and some of those fellows you're associated with now. That Willard and Lane and Young Beeson, of the scientific kind, too abominably scientific to forge ahead. Don't lose sight of what you're doing. All these things you're doing now are simply a means to an end. You are to be one of the instruments employed, as you put it yourself one day but make yourself such a highly organized responsive instrument that you are fairly alive with the idea yourself see that's where your real value will come in you know it was dr parkman now who breathed the enthusiasm which draws one to a light out beyond obstacle and difficulty i'm beginning to see the thing more and more as actual fact i caught the idea from the first and then it seemed it simply had to be done because it was such a great thing to do but I'm getting it more and more now, just as a practical matter-of-fact thing. And it isn't so far away. Not so very. You see, after all, Mrs. Hubers, you don't have to do it at all. It would be stupid to set a racehorse at a job. That could be just as well accomplished by a plug. Any well-trained man can do certain things for Carl, but it's the touch of the artist, the things that make it real. It's making the blind man see, doing the impossible. That's your work. Why, I can fairly see the whole thing, he went on, Carl and you and some good assistant. He'll get both points of view then. He can't miss anything. The other fellow can give him certain technicalities you might miss, and then you'll turn in and bring it to his vision. A clear statement of facts could never make a blind man see, and then it will be your business to keep the spirit right. That's the real point, after all. Why, I can see it just as clearly as I could see that work to be done in there, pointing to the operating room. It was another Ernestine now. She rose to it as the warrior to the trumpet call. He knew that the right word had been said. Now, I don't think it will hurt you to see some of these operations, he went on, in more business-like way not only to help with observations for Carl, but, well, just to see it for yourself. Nothing will make this quite so real and vital to you as to see it actually breaking down human organisms, destroying life. I want you to get an eye for the thing as a whole. See it as it is now. See the need of making it some other way. You must have more than a desire to help Carl. You must have an enthusiasm for the thing itself. You'll get so thin, that when you see an operation like this, you won't see just some broken-down diseased tissue that makes you feel weak need, but you'll see something to get in and fight. Oh, it's a battle, so get your fighting blood up. Remember that you'll have to have enough for two. You know, what you must do for Carl is not only give him back the weapons with which to fight, but you must rouse his soldier's blood. See what I mean? It was a joy to watch the response. He could see weariness and discouragement slipping from her as she spoke. He was thinking to himself that she was superb, but aloud he said, This is a good specimen in here if you'll just come into the next room. I'd like to go over it with you. I think I can make a few things clear. She was ready then, happy that he had so soon forgotten her first failure, appreciating his assumption that she was ready even now to go on with the fight. She will carry it through, thought Dr. Parkman as he finally left the hospital, and, by the good Lord, I believe that Carl Huber's is going to get back in the game and win. Nasty blow to the woman-haters, he mused, as he looked in upon an office full of waiting patients. A very nasty blow. End of chapter 27